0: I'm Ruth Reeder and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. Two weeks ago I joined you because I was filling in for Talib, but I'm gonna be joining you more regularly now, uh, bringing you both health and tech news. This week we'll learn how to combat health misinformation, hear a new way to track wildfires, and get some advice on making smart decisions in turbulent times. This is your Fast Break. As we've seen, this pandemic is not going away anytime soon, and neither are the conspiracy theories surrounding it. Back in May, an entertainment group released a documentary-style video claiming that COVID-19 was part of a big government conspiracy. It's called Plandemic, and it reached nearly 8 million people before social media platforms were able to take it down. Now its sequel is out, Plandemic Indoctrination, this time, it claims the pandemic was man made and it reemphasizes that it was deliberately sent out into the world. Here to help unpack this latest conspiracy theory and help to understand how far it's reached is Dr. Colina Koltai from the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. In Dr. Koltai's work, she focuses on understanding anti vaccination groups online. Welcome to the show, Dr. Koltai. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here today. Yay. Okay. So great. So we're going to talk a little bit about the sequel, Plandemic Indoctrination. So did you, you saw that that came out last week?
1: I definitely did. It was uh, pretty exciting for everyone at the center. We uh plan and like for sort of like oh let's grab a beer at noon when it comes out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally also watched it I mean, it was it was definitely something. So I'm curious, you know, comparing the last one to this one, I'm curious what you're seeing in the communities that you follow and if this is having any kind of impact.
1: So it's it's like definitely an interesting scenario between the first pandemic film and the second pandemic film, because I feel like that first film, kind of caught us all off guard. We didn't know that was coming. There wasn't like a lot of buildup to it. It was released and then was so widely disseminated. So it had a major impact within these particular communities like anti-vaccination communities, anti-lockdown, anti-mask communities. Uh, But it also was in a lot of people's like normie feeds, right? Everyone got to see this and it made a big deal. What was interesting really here with the second pandemic film is it didn't have as much widespread dissemination. A lot of people who, aren't in the like the misinformation anti-vax spaces weren't even aware that even came out because a lot of platforms are far more aware of it and they actually did a better job this time. What's interesting is that you see now in these communities that were aware of it and what little did get spread is that it now falls again into this narrative of like, oh, we're being censored. (laughs) It's where they're trying to hide the truth from us. uh, And we're seeing it at a lot of other weird places and people trying to get better at like fighting censorship. So it had already an impact even by the fact of it being censored. (laughs) And as far as the from the content of the film, I think you know, it was a much more in-depth piece. It wasn't like the 22 or 23 minute uh, initial first film. And I think the narrative of it is that it is, it is hard for, I think, for your average person to try to fight against it by saying like, no, that's wrong. That's not, that's misinformation. And it just further compounds any sort of the issues that we are seeing with misinformation that uses scientific arguments or uses experts to spread their message.
0: I think it's really interesting that the spread was less this time around. So do you think that the the platforms in this case did have an impact on sort of the narrative spread?
1: I, I definitely do. If we take, say, Facebook as an example, because that's the platform that I spend most of my time studying, there was so much less spread on there because they not only were, I think, people paying attention this time, they flagged URLs very quickly. So as soon as someone shared the URL, it got taken down. With happened with the first pandemic film and even other like videos say about like that um, America's frontline doctors, that was up for a very long time, for hours and hours, uh, days like pandemic was up for days before it started getting flagged. Pandemic two, far less so, which is also slightly infuriating because Platform like Facebook that's known for being a hub for misinformation, have always had the capability. This isn't something that that is a new skill. Like, oh, we can take down something we know is misinformation. I, I think the added pressure is finally like possibly getting into Facebook. As someone who studies these type of communities, it has been really frustrating because I'm not in that pa- that position of power to actually say like, hey, this is something you need to be doing. you guys always have this capability and now you're finally starting to do something with it which is great but we should have been doing this sooner
0: yeah no i think that that makes a lot of sense and it is interesting to sort of watch how the platforms react to these various instances i mean i think it was so telling that with the first pandemic there was all of this you know what you and other researchers refer to as mirroring or putting up of you know replicas of the original video all over the place i mean that i think took the platforms by surprise to a certain extent it just in the magnitude of how much was done i think knowing there was so much i mean there was a fair amount of advertising going around about pandemic too i think they sort of were forced to act just knowing what happened the first time around the other thing i wanted to ask you about is this narrative of you know oh the censorship narrative i mean how impactful do you think that is impactful in, which in the
1: uh, these particular communities or?
0: Yes, in those particular communities. So you were saying that, you know, in some cases, because the spread was mitigated, we didn't see these communities even being aware of it necessarily, or at least in some cases. So I'm curious, like for those communities who are less aware, is that censorship narrative reaching them? And to what extent?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on that so that censorship narrative, and I want to clarify that saying that you know I'm not in the position to say like what censorship is good or bad, <laughs> you know uh, definitely. And we looked a lot of other how uh, how other platforms handle say censorship. So Pinterest, surprisingly, like years ago, have already been on top of say um, anti-vaccine misinformation, and they just said like you know what we're not going to have that on our platform. We already see this as something that's potentially dangerous. And you don't really hear too many people complain like, oh man, Pinterest, they're really silencing the majority, like the truth of the people. And I think it's because they took the stance so early on. And so now Facebook as a platform are in this interesting spot where they're trying to like, besides being a platform that still makes money and they don't want to obviously limit <laughs> the kind of income they're having, but they're dealing with this like, shift in how they're doing their moderation and how they're like deciding of censorship. And so when we look at these narratives, I think it becomes particularly complicated where we talk about something like COVID and coronavirus and treatments and what well, the issues is because there are so many concerns that things are being hidden from the public. Uh, there are things that happen with communication, even with organizations like WHO that degrade to sometimes the trust that people have in government institutions, in public health institutions. And so when we feel like we're being, something's being hidden, from us um, or we're being lied to, it doesn't make us feel good. And so in these communities, they've already been dealing with censorship and moderation for years. But as like as the general public begins to hear that narrative, it, it brings a question like, oh, why can't I have access to this information? What's so bad about it? It's, you know, to use an analogy of a, a band of books, like, why is this banned book so bad? <laughs> So, yeah, I I don't know how much the censorship narrative has reached the public, but for those who already have this as a concern, they're definitely hearing about it it, and it's adding more additional fuel to the fire. That's a different type of fuel.
0: Mm -hmm. And just in terms of like, okay, so if you had to weigh these two phenomenons against each other, right? So you have like, on the one hand, the platforms who are responding in a very serious way and mitigating the spread of these kinds of videos like Plandemic 2 against this idea of censorship and then having to to deal with sort of the fallout of pulling down these videos. Do you think that one action is more important than the other?
1: I, I do think so. I think ultimately what's going to have more harm is the active spread of disinformation on these platforms, because it is very difficult for your average person, even for your highly educated, well familiar misinformation researcher to wade through all the information that's out there. Is it, we have an overflow of information and to navigate like what's real and what's not. Like my own parents call me and they're like, "Can't like I have them send me links to, <laughs> to help them figure it out what's real what's not and so i think the act of censorship is a very complicated and very touchy subject particularly you know deciding like who gets like what content gets censored and who is in that position of power and that's not something we could like anyone could figure out in like a 20-minute conversation but when we talk about like widespread dissemination of potentially dangerous content that can have harmful health consequences to the widespread public i think we can immediately see the harm in that so (laughs) removing that type of content from the platform is just one way to help combat
0: that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, that is great insight, and I'm so glad we got to talk.
1: No, I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm always happy. <laughs> I talk about this too much with everyone else, so this is great. I get to talk to other people about it. <laughs> I was talking to another uh, a, a colleague of mine, and you know, there is like a lot of these extremist like communities. Like, can you imagine like. QAnon, all right, and all that, and that's like one element. And then you have sort of these like health misinformation communities. So you imagine, you know, like like grifters were selling like uh, snake oil for cancer patients. You have the anti-vaxxers. We have people on those, and those are kind of separate for a while. But COVID has really made a great intersection between these two. And so we are finding ourselves in the spaces where we need people who who are more like extremist researchers that study radicalization. I'm like, well, let me talk to you about what's going on here and let's find our overlap because that's what's happening.
0: Totally. Yeah. One of the first pieces that I did at the beginning of this, because I've written about misinformation previously, but like a while ago. And so as I was sort of diving deeper into health, it was the same thing. I was like, I, off the top, I noticed it was just like, oh shoot, these worlds are really colliding in a way that they were not before. They were like very distinct groups. Anyway, cool. Well, thanks again, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. California is currently on fire. Residents have evacuated and firefighters are struggling to stem some of the worst fires on record. Fast Company deputy editor, Katherine Schwab, looked into one way people can get up-to-date information on the spread.
2: The images have become too familiar. Commuters in California driving past hillsides engulfed in flame on their way to work. Suburban settlements being evacuated as the line of flames drifts closer and closer. Extreme wildfires in the American West have simply become a fact of life. But it's been a challenge for people to get the latest information about their spread. Now, Google is embedding that information into search and maps, ensuring that people can get real-time updates as they need them. Google will use satellite data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to provide up-to-the-minute maps that show the extent of the fires. It will also share the latest information about road closures and alternate routes. The company ran a test pilot program last year. Google worked with state agencies from California and Colorado to ensure they could provide information that was accurate and timely enough to be useful. Google says that during disasters, people tend to turn to the online resources they already use, like Google Maps. They also use SOS alerts, which provide contextual information about an unfolding disaster. One of the company's goals has been to make that information more visual. In this case, NOAA essentially tells Google which pixels on their map images they believe to be currently on fire. Then, Google provides that information in search and map results. In addition to working with NOAA, Google hopes to expand the program to be able to include things like hurricane forecast cones and up-to-date earthquake information. Of course, internet access is not universally available, especially in rural areas, and particularly because fires and other disasters can damage cell towers and power lines. That means Google can't necessarily reach everyone in areas affected by fires. But in a crisis, speed can be everything. And these fires aren't going anywhere anytime soon. At least Google can provide those with connectivity with safe, accurate routes and information that can help them escape danger.
0: This is a turbulent time for many of us, but we still need to make important life decisions. Fast Company senior staff writer, Liz Siegren, wrote a book about the big decisions we make in our 20s that play out over the course of our lives. Her book is called the rocket years how your 20s Launch the rest of your life though much of her research pertains to normal times and doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic she still has some valuable insights that can be helpful during this challenging time
3: i know that many of us are really worried about how the pandemic and the economy could derail our futures But I have good news for you. My book is packed with research about how we can make smart decisions right now that will set us up to be at our strongest position when we come out of this crisis. Today, I'm going to share three insights with you about career, friendships, and hobbies. One interesting piece of research I discovered when I was writing this book is that our social circle is at its largest when we're at the age of 25, and then it keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking after that. At the age of 25, the average person has about 18 friends, and that shrinks to 8 when we're 35. At the same time, it's really important for us to be developing our friendships because Doctors say that having a strong community and close friends is really important for our mental health and our physical health. So how do we build our relationships during a time of pandemic and social distancing? Well, I have a couple of ideas. I know that you're really sick of Zoom cocktail hours and FaceTime dates. I'm really sick of them too. Part of the reason that these things are so exhausting is that it's really stressful to be on a call with someone and being forced to stare at each other and make conversation for half an hour. Nobody really wants to do that because that's not really natural. Psychologists say that the way that relationships come about is through repeated casual interactions that are not stressful. So we need to find ways to recreate that during the pandemic. A more natural way to build your relationships could be to do an activity together with Zoom in the background. So for instance, I've recently been cooking dinner with a friend and both of us have Zoom on in the background and we talk to each other and catch up while we're cooking dinner. And it just feels a lot more natural. I've had friends who have done Spa nights with their friends where everybody is doing their face masks and they're all chatting together and it just feels more like how we really interact with friends. Other people are doing video games together or watching movies together. These are all great ways to replicate what it's like building relationships in real life. But if you're looking to increase your circle of friends, there are ways to do that too. One thing you could do is download an app like House Party, which allows you to create a little virtual room where you can invite your friends, but your friends can also invite their friends. And that way, you might encounter people that you'd never met before who could be friends of yours in the future. And I've also heard that it's a really good time to be reaching out to people at companies that you might want to work for because a lot of people are stuck at home, which means that they have time to do informational interviews right now. So don't be shy about reaching out one step further in your network because now is actually a really good time to do that. Another fascinating insight that I discovered as I was writing my book is that Hobbies are actually one of the most important things you can be investing in in your 20s and 30s. While most of us aren't really focused on our hobbies in those years because we're so busy working on finding the right job and finding the right life partner, researchers have found that hobbies are actually really important for our happiness and our mental health and even our productivity at work. In fact, some doctors even recommend hobbies as an intervention for patients who are depressed or stressed. But the thing is that it often takes time to get into a new hobby, like fishing or knitting or gardening or camping. It takes time to learn the skills necessary to get good at these hobbies. So now might be a really valuable time to throw yourself into these activities. I know that it might seem a little frivolous to be investing in these things now when you're already so stressed and there's so many aspects of your life that feel a little bit out of control, but don't think of it as a waste of time because it's not. These are things you can be doing that actually enhance your lifelong happiness. Now I'm one of those people who didn't really think much about my hobbies in my 20s. And I really regret that because I really wish that I had spent more time doing things that made me happy apart from work and relationships. But during this quarantine, I have picked up a whole range of new hobbies and they have really been enhancing my happiness and my mental health. I picked up knitting. I'm not very good at it, but. I'm doing it. Uh, I'm also turning into quite an avid gardener, and I went camping for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So even though we're in this bleak, strange time, many of us have a few extra hours on our hands every week, and what better way to spend them than on something that will make us happy not just now, but in our future. I know that we're going through a really stressful time, but it's good to know that there are things we can be doing right now that can help us get through this period and also help us come out even stronger on the other side of it.
0: That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reeder.